Well, this morning we return to part four of the sub-series of the series on the attributes of God. The sub-series is the sovereignty of God. The big series is the attributes of God that we are launching from Psalm 145. And as we come to to this particular part of the sovereignty of God, I want you to know this is the this is the hot fudge Sunday doctrine um, that relates to the sovereignty of God. It is so good and it is so great. It is such a just an incredible, uh, credible blessing that as we go through this, I think you'll see more and more just how wonderful it is. You may know something of the providence of God, but hopefully today you'll know a little bit more and be convinced that God's providence is in fact involved in every area of your life. Now, as we've gone to Psalm 145, we've noted first of all that in verse 1, God is described as a king, which is a supreme ruler. Not only that, in verse 5, he is described as majestic, which is to display royal splendor. Not only that, in verses 11 through 13, he is described as having an everlasting kingdom and reigning with dominion, which is the exercise, again, of sovereignty. So all of these terms tell us that God is sovereign. So what we've been doing is we've been looking at God's sovereignty in different aspects and many other places in Scripture, trying to give you a broader view of this important doctrine. So we started to look at what the Scriptures teach. And we have learned that understanding the sovereignty of God should change the way you live. The sovereignty of God is not just some theological doctrine that, well, that's, that's interesting. No, it should change the way you live. Secondly, we have learned that God is a sovereign, and His sovereignty is infinite and absolute, which means it is all-encompassing of every single thing that happens. We have discovered that Since God is sovereign, he has a will that encompasses everything whatsoever that comes to pass. It's called his decree, or his absolute decree, or his declarative will. And God is in charge of fulfilling that will, and there's nothing we need to do about it, because he's going to make it happen. Then we discover that God also has a perceptive will. That is what God prescribes to us in the pages of scripture it's what he says when he says don't steal and we have to choose to submit ourselves to that will he doesn't make us do it we choose to do it we choose to align so god's perceptive will which is under his overall declarative will or decree is something we are responsible to fulfill And we also learn that while God never sins, while God takes no pleasure in wickedness, even though he is holy and is never tempted to sin, nor does he tempt anyone else to sin, yet God uses both sinful people and sinful situations to accomplish his perfect will. We saw that last week. And we learned that one of the doctrines that relates to that is called the doctrine of concurrence. And as an example, we talked about the crucifixion. 
God had predicted in Genesis 3.15 that the crucifixion would occur and all the way through the Old Testament. It was God's plan before the foundation of the world to send his only begotten son into the world to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life and to die a torturous death on the cross for the sins of unworthy men and women. That was his plan. Yet, when it came down to it, Pilate, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, Herod, the people, the mob, the Roman soldiers were all working to do evil against Christ, the innocent Son of God. They falsely accused Him. They falsely tried Him. They falsely sensed Him. They tortured Him and nailed Him to a cross and were responsible for everything they did. Yet, at the same time, God predestined it. It was His plan and that's what He determined to do before the foundation of the world. That, we learned, is called the doctrine of concurrence. God was working, men were working, but God was able to accomplish His perfect plan. The big word or phrase we use for it is the simultaneity of first and second causes. And if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, just get the tape and we go into it in some detail. But this morning we go to one more doctrine that is really significant to understand and very practical for the way you live your life, and that is providence. God is sovereign, which means he has a position of authority. Because he is sovereign, he has a will, which is what he determines to do because he is sovereign. But then when God begins to act out his will or cause his will to come to pass, he does that through providence. And so that is what we want to look at this morning. I want to do three things this morning. First, I want to define providence so you can understand what it is. Secondly... I want to illustrate providence so you can see how it works and how it applies to your life. And third, I want to help you see its relevance to your life specifically. First, let's look at the definition of providence. Providence, according to the early Baptist theologian John Gill, is the means, quote, by which all the creatures of God, which he has made, are preserved, governed, guided, and directed. God upholds all things by his power, governs the world by his wisdom, looks down upon the earth, takes notice and care of all his creatures in it, and makes provision for them, and guides and directs them to answer the ends for which they were made, which is the sum and substance of providence, end quote. Thomas Watson in his work, A Body of Divinity, defines providence saying, There is no such thing as blind fate, but there is a providence that guides and governs the world. Providence is God's ordering all issues and events of things after the counsel of his will to his own glory, end quote. Miller J. Erickson, who wrote you know, a 900-page volume called Christian Theology, defined providence in these words. Providence is the continuing action of God by which he preserves in existence the creation which he has brought into being and guides it to his intended purposes for it. In other words, providence is how God executes his perfect will. It's the means by which he does that. A great text on that is Ephesians 1.11 when Paul is speaking of the salvation of believers. He says this, Having been predestined according to his purpose, now listen to this, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Did you see that? God is working all things after the counsel 
of his will. That is amazing. That is amazing. You ask, how could he do that? He does it through providence. Providence then is the working of God to bring about his absolute decree, which encompasses, as we learned, everything whatsoever that comes to pass. God is sovereign. Now, one of the classic texts on providence is Romans 8.28. You can turn there. Many of us have this text memorized because it's such a great comfort. You know, so often things happen to us and we can't do anything about it. And this verse comes to the rescue. Now, the context of this verse is great. In, in Romans, Romans is just a great book that speaks of God's plan of salvation. And in the book of Romans, God is going through, or, or Paul is going through, telling us what God is doing to bring people to salvation. And in chapter 8, is just the climax of the book. And in the near context, he talks about, we don't even know how to pray as we should, but God intercedes for us through the Holy Spirit and helps us to pray the way we should. Then in verse 28, we read this. Look there. God causes... All things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Notice the text says God causes. Now just stop there. This is what you need to get down here in your head. God causes. In other words, he makes it happen. What does he make happen? Look at the text. All things to work together for good. God causes all things to work together for good. That is amazing, considering that there are many evil things. But he qualifies it. He doesn't cause all things to work together for good for anybody, but to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, Paul goes on to explain how God predestined some to salvation and sanctification and eventually glorification. But think about verse 28. What does it really tell you? It tells you this. That God is using all good things in your life for your good. God is using all bad things in your life for your good. And God is using all things in your life for your good. That's what that verse tells us. It's amazing. But it's true. Thomas Watson, in an attempt to illustrate the providence of God, said this, quote, The providences of God are sometimes dark and our eyes dim, and we can hardly tell what to make of them. But when we cannot unriddle providence, let us believe that it will work together for the good of the elect. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The wheels in a clock seem to move contrary to one another, but they help forward the motion of the clock and make the chimes ring. So the providence of God seems to be cross wheels, but for all that, they shall carry on the good of the elect. End quote. That is so great. If you've ever seen one of those big grandfather clocks with all the gears in them, there's big gears and little gears, and they're all kind of, you know, clicking and going contrary to one another. But what do they do? They all make the hand go at the right speed in the right direction. Because the person who designed the clock made it that way. Well, the person who designed the universe and planned it out from the beginning made it the way it is working 
to bring him the most glory and the elect the most good. Watson also said, quote, suppose you were in a smith shop and should see there several sorts of tools, some crooked, some bowed, others hooked. Would you condemn all these things because they did not look handsome? The smith makes use of them all for doing his work. Thus it is with the providences of God. They seem to us to be very crooked and strange, yet they all carry on God's work. God is sovereign, which means he has a will. And because he's sovereign and he has a will, and that will is all-encompassing, he has to work to make it come to pass, and he does that through providence. And from our perspective, a lot of times you just think, I have no idea what God is doing. This seems like a very crooked instrument or tool to accomplish the plan. But yet God accomplishes it just the same. God's providence is the wheel and the rudder of all creation. It's steering everything in the universe to his intended purpose for his glory and amazingly enough for your good, even if it hurts along the way. Now let me give you an illustration. In all the Bible, there is one grand illustration of providence. I I know of no other illustration of the sovereignty of God, of concurrence and providence, than this one illustration. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, Jack, I, you know, the sovereignty of God thing is kind of theological, it's kind of technical. Does it really apply to me? I mean, how exactly? And if you can't quite see how it works yet in your life, you're going to see it in just a second. Here is this biblical illustration. It's found in the book of Genesis In the book of Genesis, there is one person who is given more space than any other person. And his story begins in Genesis 37. His birth is briefly mentioned. You can turn to Genesis 37. But the story, his story of his life, the purpose of his life, is really begins to be focused on in Genesis 37. As a matter of fact, his story continues to the end of the book in chapter 50, with the exception of chapter 38, which is the story of Tamar and Judah. And the person I am talking about is Joseph, the son of Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. Now the theme of Genesis just so happens to be the sovereignty of God in the making and preserving of the nation of Israel. And so when you study Genesis, know this... That the whole book and all the pieces of the book are all designed to help us see how God is forming a people for his own possession through which the word of God will come and the Messiah will come to redeem all the people of the earth. So when you're looking at all the stories in the book of Genesis, all the people and all the instances, you must keep this grand theme in your mind. Now, in order to really see the significance of the providence of God in your life, you need to let your mind wander back in time and imagine what it might have been to be Joseph. Joseph, one of the youngest sons of Jacob. Joseph, the most loved son of Jacob. 
If you remember, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, didn't he? But when he went to marry Rachel, after working seven years for her, his father-in-law got him drunk and gave him a different wife. And in the morning, he woke up and behold, it was Leah. And so he ended up working another seven years, but was able to take Rachel as a wife also. And Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. But though Rachel was the most loved wife, Leah was the most fertile wife. And she began to have babies. And she began to despise her sister Rachel. Rachel didn't like this. And so Rachel decided to give her handmaid to Jacob as a wife so she could bear offspring through her handmaid. Well, then Leah starts shutting down, so she gives her handmaid to Jacob, and pretty soon, Jacob has four wives and twelve sons. In the aftermath of what I like to call the baby war. These twelve sons are destined to become the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. And Joseph, if you are familiar with the story, is the firstborn son of Rachel who bore Joseph and then later Benjamin in her old age. She was barren all of her younger years and then as she almost got past the age of childbearing, God gave Rachel the ability to bear two children, Joseph and then later Benjamin. And because... Jacob loved Rachel more. He had a favorite son, the firstborn son, Joseph, and treated him special. Now, if you know the end of the story, you know that it was God's sovereign plan to make Joseph a ruler of all Egypt so that Joseph could deliver the people of Egypt from the famine and so he could get the tribes of Israel into the land of Egypt, which was very fertile, so that they could be there and that it would act kind of like a petri dish to multiply them into these, this great horde of people that later on he would deliver through the hand of Moses to make a nation of Israel through whom which the word of God would come and the Messiah. So that is his grand plan. And we know that because we know the end of the story. But remember, Joseph does not know the end of the story. He doesn't even know the middle of the story. And it makes you wonder as you begin to look at this story, how in the world, if you were God, would you ever bring about getting Joseph, one of the younger, and we will find out despised sons of Jacob, who was a shepherd in Canaan, to be ruler of all Egypt. I can't even think of a way. I mean, I can't even imagine the way that it happened. It was so incredible. The Egyptians despised shepherds. Egyptians didn't make Hebrews, Hebrew shepherds, rulers. It just didn't happen. Unless God wants it to happen. And even though it's hard to imagine how Joseph, this Hebrew shepherd, 
who was despised by his brothers, could ever become ruler of Egypt. That's exactly what God did. And he did it in a way that is so amazing. It is so grand that it reminds us of what Paul said in Romans 11.33 when he says, Oh, the depth and the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has given him counsel? I mean, who knows that? God's ways are so grand. They are just beyond plummeting. So what we're going to do is we're going to skim through this story. And I want you to put, your play, put yourself into Joseph's place. Because many of you will go through things like Joseph went through. And I want you to remember that right now in your life, you may be planning your way. But the Lord is directing your steps. Right now, you may have certain desires in your heart, but you must remember that your desires are like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, and He turns them wherever He wants them to go. God is sovereign. Look at Genesis 37 too. These are the records of the generations of Jacob... Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Those are the handmaids given to Jacob by Rachel and Leah. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now just stop there. Joseph is one of the younger. He's 17. All of his brothers are quite a bit older than he is. They're all out pastoring um, their flocks. Joseph goes out, sees them, sees them doing evil, comes back, and tattletales. Now, I don't know if you've ever been an older brother or older sister and had a younger brother or younger sister tattletale on you. But how did you like that? Well, they didn't like it either. As a matter of fact, they hated him for it. So Joseph now is one of the youngest of Jacob's sons. And he goes out and he brings back a bad report. And they hate him for it. Because he tattled. To make things worse, look at verse 3 of Genesis 37. It says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic, and his brothers saw that their father loved him more and all his brothers than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him in friendly terms. I mean, if there's one way to exasperate your children, it's to love one more than the other, right? And that's exactly what happened here. And worse yet, he's given this great, you know, multicolored, very colored tunic, this beautiful robe. So every time they see Joseph, what does that robe remind them of? That dad loves Joseph more than us. And so they can't even speak to him on friendly terms. They despise him so much. And I ask you this. Did Joseph do what was right by telling his father about his brother's evil deeds? Well, yes. 
He could not help how they would respond. I mean, criminals do things and they don't like to get caught and they get angry when they get caught, but they need to get caught. And could Joseph help that he was the firstborn son of the most loved wife? Well, no. Could he help that he was more loved than his other brothers and given a nice, very colored tunic? No. But more things happen in Joseph's life that he had no control over, just like you will have many things happen in your life which you have no control over. And you just need to give up the control thing. You are not in control. I am not in control. There is one who is in control. It's God. Joseph has two sets of dreams given to him by God. And could Joseph help this? Well, no. <clears throat> the first dream, starting in Genesis 37.5, is a dream where Joseph says to his brothers, you know, I had a dream. And the text says in verse 35 that they hated him just because he had the dream. But wait until he tells them about it. I'm in this field, and we're, we're out there working. We're, you know, cutting the, the wheat and, and bundling up into sheaves, and all of a sudden my sheave stands up erect, and yours all pop over to it, and they all bow down and pay homage. Now, it doesn't take a scientist to figure that one out. They didn't like it a bit. You mean you... Our little runt brother is going, are going to rule over us? Not in your life. And the end of verse 8 says, And they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. But it doesn't stop there. Joseph has another dream. And in this dream... There's 11 stars and the sun and the moon and they're all bowing down to him. Now he's got mom and dad bowing down to him. And believe me, this does not bode well with his brothers. They do not like this. Mom and dad, I mean, they're in a patriarchal structure where the patriarch rules. And now Joseph, the little runt brother... We're all going to bow down and worship you? And they hate him. And Jacob rebukes him. But what's interesting, verse 11 says, His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Hmm. Interesting. Then the plot really begins to thicken. The brothers are out pasturing in the field. They're out there in the field and they're pasturing their father's flocks and and Jacob says, Joseph, I want you to go out there and check on your brothers. Well, remember what happened last time. He went out and he told on them. So they didn't like him coming out to check on them. But in the providence of God, he is sent. In the providence of God, he goes. And in the providence of God, he runs into a man. Because he goes to where they should be and they aren't there. He runs into a man. And we don't know if it's an angel of the Lord or whatever. But this 
man tells him, we want you to go. And he's oh, there. I, I heard them talking and they're, they're pastoring over that way. So he goes to his brothers and he finds them. But while he is coming at a distance, they see him coming and they, ah, oh, tattletale. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. He's been a problem. And so they decide that they are going to kill him. Luckily, in the providence of God, Reuben is the only one who has any sympathy. And so Reuben then comes to his rescue and says, Brothers, we are not going to kill him. Whatever you do, don't kill him. We aren't going to have his blood on our hands. So they throw him into a pit. Now, do you think it is a coincidence that Reuben, the oldest son of the twelve, happened to save Joseph's life? Well, of course not. It was the providence of God, just like everything else that happened then and now in your life. Now, when Reuben is off tending his flocks, he comes back to find that Joseph is gone. His brothers... Or hanging around the pit, making fun of him. And all of a sudden, some Midianite traders came, some Ishmaelite traders. And they came and they said, hey, let's just sell him. We can get some money for him. And they tear his very colored tunic off of him. And they sell him for 20 pieces of silver, just like Judas sold Christ. And they sell him as a slave to these traders. And then they take his very colored tunic and they rip it up and put some blood on it. And then, you know, they go back home and go, oh, dad, look what happened. You know, I think a beast ate him. This is all we found. What do you think? And, of course, Jacob is just broken hearted because Joseph was the most loved son. Now, the Midianite traders just happened to take Joseph to Egypt. Oh, he's getting closer to being ruler of Egypt. Now he's a slave. Belonging to some traders. Not even close to getting there yet. I mean, he's in the geographical location now. They take him down there and they sell him to Potiphar. Potiphar is a title, a position. It is captain of the Pharaoh's bodyguard. That's who Potiphar is. And they sell him to Potiphar. So meanwhile, the brothers are back concocting the story, convincing their father that Joseph was eaten by a wild beast, while Joseph is being betrayed and betrayed and now is a slave to an Egyptian. Undeservingly. And you can imagine how he felt at 17 years old, betrayed by his own brothers. Now if you turn over to Genesis 39, turn there. In verse 2 through 5, this is what we read. The Lord was with Joseph so that he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him. And how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him... He made him oversee over his house, overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord blessed, um, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house 
and in the field. Now think about this. Did you see anything in there? Did you see things like the Lord was with? And the Lord was with. And the Lord caused. And the Lord blessed. God is the one who is working here to bless Joseph. God is working through these circumstances to bless him in his trial. Just like he blesses you in your trial. Have you ever wondered why so many places in the scriptures it says things, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. Oh, really? How do I do that? Because God uses those things to bless you. Now at this point, you must remember, Joseph has no idea of what God's plan is for him. Just like you have no idea what God's plan is for your future. He has had two dreams, but he doesn't know why he had them, and they only seem to get him into trouble. But now things are looking up. He's a slave, but he's a slave of a guy with some power, and he's been put in charge of all his house, so he has a good job, you know, good security. Things seem to be pretty good. For a slave, he's doing well. But God needs to get Joseph near Pharaoh, and he needs to make Pharaoh want to appoint him and trust him to be ruler of all Egypt, which is no easy task. And you think, oh, how is he going to do that? I don't know of a way. It's just inconceivable. But Joseph, while he is in Potiphar's house, has a problem, because he has a cell phone. No, not really, sorry. Um, He has a problem because he has a woman in the house who is Potiphar's wife who desires him and is lusting after him and keeps appealing to him to commit adultery. He keeps saying, no, no, no. Finally, when no one's in the house, she latches onto him. He sprints for the door and she rips the shirt off his back. And she's so exasperated that he would not commit adultery with her that she screams and says, he tried to rape me. And he gets thrown into prison. Unjustly. Now, you're thinking to yourself, now not only is he a slave, he is a criminal slave in jail. He seems farther from being ruler of Egypt than ever before, even as a Hebrew shepherd in Canaan. Because now he's not only despised because he's a shepherd, he's despised because he's a criminal, and he tried to put the move on Potiphar's wife. Now look at Genesis 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him, and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Now think about this. Joseph is a criminal, and God blesses him, and now... He's in charge of all the prisoners. And the chief jailer, who's supposed to be in charge of all the prisoners, he's just on vacation, permanently, getting a paycheck. 
And Joseph is taking care of the whole prison. That's a good deal for the chief jailer. And it's a good deal for Joseph. Because at least he isn't confined to a cell. And things are looking up a bit. Well, now he's an elevated criminal. (laughs) But he still has been falsely accused. He's still in the jail. Now, let me ask you this. Could Joseph help that he was sold to Potiphar? No. That the Lord gave him favor? No. That Potiphar put him in charge of his entire house? No. That Potiphar's wife lusted after him? No. That he was framed for rape? No. Thrown in prison? No. Given favor in the sight of the chief jailer and put in charge of everything? No. Who was in charge of all that? God was. It wasn't chance and it wasn't luck. And it wasn't Joseph's industriousness. And it would seem, at least from our perspective, that Joseph is farther from being ruler of Egypt than he ever has been before as a criminal in jail. But God, who is sovereign over all, whose providence guides all things to work according to his goodwill, knows that he has a way that he is going to get Joseph to be ruler of all Egypt. The way he does it is amazing. The Pharaoh has a couple men who serve him closely. The chief baker and the cupbearer. The cupbearer is the man who who tastes the king's food and hands it to him so that nobody will poison the king or the Pharaoh. And both of those two men get in trouble with the king and they're both thrown into jail. Now what's really amazing is, is Joseph is not your typical jailer. He is concerned about, about these criminals in his charge. And the text says he sees a couple of the criminals, you know, dejected. Now, how many jailers go around saying, oh, are you doing all right? You you look a little down today. Well, I'm in jail. You know, I mean, is there anything I can do for you? No, why don't you tell me about it? Let's talk. But that's the kind of jailer he was. So these guys spew on him. And they tell him about how they got there. And they had these two dreams. They don't know what they mean. So in the providence of God, these guys are thrown into jail. In the providence of God, they have a dream. And in the providence of God, Joseph talks to him. In the providence of God, Joseph knows how to interpret dreams. Ha! How lucky. Now... These two men have these two dreams. Joseph interprets the dream, and the dream basically says this. Cupbearer, your dream means that you are going to be restored in three days to your normal service to Pharaoh. And the baker thinks, oh, that sounds good. What's mine mean? You're going to be hung in three days. And that's exactly what happens. But before they get released from prison, after Joseph interprets the dream, look at Genesis chapter 40, verse 14. Joseph says this to the cupbearer, only keep me in mind when it goes well with you and please do not do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Joseph's saying, you know, cupbearer, I know this is going to happen to you and I just want you to know, um, could you please just mention to Pharaoh, you know, that there's a, a Hebrew um, in jail, who was there unjustly, who was framed for rape, who was sold by his brothers, and, and, and he'd really like to get out of jail. And could you remember, please? 
So the cupbearer promptly goes out and forgets all about Joseph and what he did in the providence of God. But later in the providence of God, Pharaoh has a dream. And in his dream, he sees these fat cows and sleek cows and these fat, plump ears of corn and skinny ones, and the skinny ones gobble up the fat ones, and he has no idea what it means. So he asks in his kingdom, and no one can interpret the dream, and he's all perplexed, and he's worried, and finally the cupbearer hears about it, and bingo, he remembers, hey, there's this guy. I was in jail with this guy, this this, this, this Hebrew, and he interpreted my dream for me, and it came through just like he said, I'll go get him, okay, go get him. So they clean him up, they bring Joseph in front of Pharaoh. Joseph explains to Pharaoh, this is the meaning of your dream. There's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, and because you had two dreams that meant the same thing, it means it's going to start right now. The Pharaoh is so blown away by his ability to interpret the dreams and his wisdom that he says, how about this, I will make you ruler over all Egypt. There, God did it. But how many of you could ever imagine that that's how God should do it? I think if all the people in the world sat down and made a guess, no one would guess anything like that. Then comes the climax of the story. The climax of the story is this. Joseph is now ruler of all Egypt. And so he immediately begins to put a plan into place where each of the seven years of plenty, they start storing huge amounts of grain in preparation for the famine they know is coming because God said it would. And all those years he is then ruling. What's interesting is is when Joseph began to rule, he was 30 years old, the text says, which means he was sold at 17, and from 17 to 30, he was mistreated and falsely accused and thrown into prison and totally forgot for 13 years. And then seven more years, he reigned as ruler of all Egypt, never seeing his family, isolated, alone, And we would think that is so bad. Well, what happens is the famine comes. And pretty soon, Jacob realizes that they're going to need some food. And he hears through the traders that the only place to get food around here is Egypt. And so he sends his sons, all of them except Benjamin. And he's scared to let Benjamin go because Benjamin is the only son that's still alive of the most loved wife. Rachel. So he sends the ten sons to go down to Egypt. And guess who's selling the grain? Their brother that they betrayed. And sold as a slave to the Midianite traders. Turn to Genesis 45. Through a series of events, Joseph finds out whether 
his brothers are just purely evil or whether they love their father and whether they feel any remorse for what they did to him. And he discovers, yes, they do love Jacob and they do have, they do feel remorse for what they did to him. And he is so pent up with emotions. He's having this feast for him and he gets them to bring Benjamin, which was a big act because Jacob was clinging to Benjamin. We aren't going to send Benjamin down there. But when they came down the first time, he held Simeon captive and said, well, let's just see if you do have a younger brother. If all the brothers come down, just like you say, and I get to see him, then I'll let Simeon go. So they go back home with grain, and when they come back, they've got Benjamin, because it's either that or starve. And he sits them down on this big table, and they're having this big feast. And he just happens to seat them, each in the order of their birth. And at the head of the table is Benjamin, who gets a double portion, his own blood brother. But he's got so much emotion and all this homesick and all this tragedy and all this hurt in his life and the mistreatment he received from his brothers and the longing he just for his brother and his mother and his father and all of that is just so pent up within him. He explodes in chapter 45. Look at there in verse 1. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer them. For they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Whoa. Notice what that last line said. You sold into Egypt. Remember that. Verse 5, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me. Did you see that? God, for God has sent me before you to preserve life. Wait a second here. Who was it? Did the brothers do it? Yes. Did God do it? Yes. That sounds very similar to the doctrine of concurrence. The simultaneity of first and second causes, doesn't it? Exactly. They were doing evil to him. God was doing good. Look at the text again. For the famine, verse 6, has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Look at verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. Whoa! That is so heavy. 
But he says here in the text, God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God did it in his providence. People, this is the providence of God. You don't know what God's going to do with your life. But you know he is. You know that Ephesians 2.10 says, And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. He's going to make it happen. And eventually Joseph gets his whole family to come to Egypt. And there they settle into the land of Goshen, a very fertile land where they just multiply. Jacob dies and is buried And his brothers are scared. They're scared because they have in their mind, you know, you know why, you know why Joseph's been nice to us? He's been nice to us because he didn't want to hurt dad's feelings. But now that dad's gone, he's probably going to get revenge. And so look at Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which he did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charges before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. I mean, they are groveling. They're on the ground. Don't kill us. You know, whatever you want to do, just don't kill us. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and all your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You meant evil. God meant it for good. Concurrence, providence, sovereignty. We see in this story God's sovereignty and concurrence and providence working all together. Thomas Watson said, The wicked against their will do us good. Thomas Watson reminds us that God is able to strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. And do you know who the crooked stick is? You are. I am. God says, Oh, do this, and we don't do it. He says, you know, all you need to do this, and we don't do it. We rebel against him. We try our best not to do what he wants, not to trust him, to worry, to anxious, to be whatever he doesn't want us to be. We're constantly sinning. We're constantly going astray like sheep. But he's using our sin to teach us things, to get us where he wants to suffer consequences, to bring us to the exact place he wants us to be so he can use us in the way he wants to use us. Now, if you can't see the application in all of this, let me just spell it out to you. 
There are people who live in the fear of the what ifs. But what if this happens? There are people who live in the fear of what has happened. There are people who are anxious and fretting and fearful and stressed because they aren't in control, but what they need to do is realize they aren't in control. When something in your life happens that you are not in control of, you're not in control of it. But God is. And a person like that, they look at Joseph's life and they go, oh, it's so bad that Joseph's brothers despised Joseph for tattling on them. It's so terrible that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And it's, it's too bad that they gave him that nice coat which made his brothers jealous. And it's too bad that he had to be sent out to his brothers. It's too bad they threw him in their pit. And too bad they threw him to the Midian traders. And too bad he was sold to Potiphar. And too bad he was framed for rape. And too bad he was thrown in prison. Oh, how tragic tragic it was. I mean, oh, he went into prison and, oh, yeah, well, yeah, he did. And, oh, and he did all those good deeds. Oh, he was elevated. Oh, it's too bad that the cupbearer forgot him. This is so tragic. His life is just miserable. It's worthless. It's just nothing but a big tragedy. Separated with family, mistreated, falsely accused for 20 years. What terrible luck. What bad fortune. No, no, it was God's plan. That would be the response of the atheist, the person who refuses to believe the word of God. Joseph did not have a serious case of bad luck. He had a serious case of the providence of God. Just like you do, just like I do. The person who understands God's sovereignty, concurrence, and providence, they see God working in all things. They may not know how. And they may be sad that certain tragedies happen, but they can have hope and they can have faith and they cannot fail to trust God because they know He's working it all out for their good. They just don't know how. And when they look at Jacob's story and Joseph's story, they say, well, Jacob had to favor Rachel. Why? So he could love Joseph more. So Joseph could be despised. So he could give him the very colored tunic. So he would be more despised. So he could tattle on his brothers. So they would be angry with him. So when he went the second time, they could throw him in the pits. They could sell him to the traders. So he'd go to Potiphar's house. So he could get elevated. So he'd get framed for rape. So he'd get thrown to prison. So he could interpret the dream for the cupbearer. So he could get forgotten. So he could get remembered. So he could become ruler of all Egypt and save all the people who would become the nation of Israel who then would receive the word of God and the Messiah by which you and I are saved. And see, that is the whole purpose of understanding God's providence. It's not some theological ditty that we we throw out there. It's working in your life, and it's working in my life. And it's so important that we live and understand that God is in control. God right now is working in your life, all of our lives, right now, all the time, in every circumstance, painful or not. Millard Erickson in his Christian theology said, 
the believer is not spared from danger or trial, but preserved within it. Why does Jesus warn against anxiety in Matthew chapter 6, verses 23 through 33? You know, consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. You know, look how beautiful these things are dressed and they're gone tomorrow. Look at these birds. They're just birds. Yet not one of them falls to the earth without your father knowing it. All the hairs in your head are numbered. God is even knows what you need before you ask him. He's omniscient. Why are you worrying? Why are you fretting like the Gentiles who do not know God? God is sovereign. His providence is working in your life. And if you receive something, it is from God's hand and only from his hand. Why does Paul say in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Why does he give you that command? Because God is sovereign. And to worry and fret and be anxious is to sin against his sovereignty. You know, when you look in the world and you think, Oh, what if we go to war with Iraq? It's the providence of God. What if we get bombed against by terrorists? It's the providence of God. What if all the nations turn against us and blow our nation into dust? It's the providence of God. It's part of his plan. And if you survive, it will be for your good and his glory. And if you die, it will be for your good and his glory. Psalm 29.10 says, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. God is king. God is sovereign. He has an absolute decree that he is in charge of obeying. He has a perceptive will, which is given to us in the commands of Scripture. And you and I are responsible to obey that. He is able to work simultaneously with both good things and bad things to accomplish his will and he does that by providence which is in control of all things so as you leave here today be encouraged be thankful be trusting be joyful you have a god who is in control and he is working all things for your good let's pray father we are so grateful just to have your word to give us these words of encouragement Father, we know that, that we don't deserve what you give us. And Father, you don't deserve what we give you. Father, we need to worship you more. We need to obey you more. We need to serve you more because you are a God who is able to work all things together for our good. Father, help people not to worry and be anxious. Help us not to fret when we realize we're out of control because we are. And Father, I pray for each person here that each person here would work diligently to study your word, to meditate on it, to memorize some of the verses we've looked at, draw encouragement from them, and live an unflappable life in the midst of a very chaotic world. So that when people come to us and they see our calm and the peace and the joy we have, they would be moved to ask why and then we could share the gospel with them and introduce them to you. 
Father, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.